Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Learning with the Lion, a community read-through of the Gospel of Mark. Over the summer of 2023, members of the Ligonier community are coming together to walk through a 13-week exploration of Jesus' life, practicing reading the Bible together and asking what it means for everyday life. For more information, visit epiphanyligonier.org mark, where you can also sign up for our companion e-newsletter. Earlier this week, I, I heard some heartbreaking news. Did any of you uh, watch the movie from 2009, uh, The Blind Side? Anybody watch that movie? Know what I'm talking about? Right? It's, uh, oh, you weren't even born yet, my guy. You got some time. <laughs> Uh, the, it, it's a heartwarming football movie. It's it's based on this young, functionally homeless, big black teenager, and his name was Michael O'Her, and he was welcomed into the stable home of an affluent white family, and they helped him. They helped him study. They got him some tutors. They helped him catch up in school, and then they also plugged him into the local high school football team. And when they plugged him into the football team, he excelled. He was big. He was athletic. He did very well. He went on to graduate high school, went played uh, college ball at Old Miss, and then became a Baltimore Raven. Not everyone's perfect. Uh, the movie was was nominated for uh, an Oscar. Sandra Bullock won the Oscar for the best actress for playing the the mother of the family that adopted Michael O'Hare. It's a very heartwarming, happy film. Well, it may not have been all true. This week, the real Michael O'Hare, now 37 years old. He filed a lawsuit that shattered this story to pieces. It turns out what his accusation is, is that when he was 18, his parents, his sort of adopted pseudo-parents, gave him paperwork and said, this is the paperwork, it's like we're adopting you. And he signed the paperwork at age 18. Turns out, he says, the accusation is they were not adoption papers. Those papers were conservatorship papers. He says that at age 18, without knowing it and being duped by these people, he signed away his name and his likeness to these people uh, for uh, them to make a profit out of. They got the rights to do business with his name and likeness. And the result is that he personally never made a single penny off the movie that was made in his name. And so the courts are getting involved. There'll be a full accounting. We don't know what the outcome is going to be, Um, but it's heartbreaking because you have this beautiful thing that you think is true and you think is good and it says something nice about humanity and, and healing racial boundaries and, and the socioeconomic crossing of, of, of boundaries, but it's been exposed. It may not be true. In fact, it's the exact opposite of what it maybe was meant to be, uh, where someone is taken advantage of in a particularly predatory way. Um, I want to speak this morning about what it means to have something exposed, what, I, what it means to be exposed. Uh, in our reading from Mark 14, we're, we're at the sort of climactic moment of the gospel in which everyone has a full accounting of what they really think about Jesus. It was a long reading today, I understand. Thank you for, for going through it with me. Um, but what we see is just everyone in Jesus' orbit is being exposed and having their hearts exposed for what they truly are. Uh, there are a couple of them that I can briefly touch on, right? Judas was exposed as a traitor for the first time in Mark's gospel. Outwardly, he had been one of the 12, one of the the top disciples, but 
inwardly something set him off. Probably the scene with the woman with the alabaster jar. That's what the other Gospels tell us. He's so indignant, he's, he, he has his doubts, and that sort of seals it when this woman breaks the alabaster jar to anoint Jesus and wastes 300 denarii. That's 300 days worth of labor. That's 80% of an of a annual salary is what that cost. And so what does he do? He exposes Jesus. He goes and makes plans with the chief priests to have him arrested. Judas is exposed. His heart is exposed. He is a false follower of Jesus. Here's something else that was exposed, not too particularly, um, not negative necessarily, but we find the true meaning of the Passover feast in this reading, don't we? The Passover, the great meal that, that calls to mind God's saving work in the Exodus, right? Egypt and slavery and Moses and let my people go. That's what this meal is supposed to commemorate. But Jesus says, when you have this meal, you don't just think of that anymore. You just have to think of me. And every time you have the bread and drink the wine, you're going to think of what I'm about to do for you. Jesus says that Passover thing, yeah, you're going to remember Egypt, but Egypt and Passover are actually pointing to me. And so the true meaning of the Passover is exposed for all of us to understand. Uh, there are others in this reading who are exposed as well. The chief priests are exposed as jealous frauds. Rather than take Jesus' ministry as a blessing and as an act of God for all the healings and exorcisms and teachings, they sought to kill Jesus because of his popularity. We read part of that in Mark 13 and earlier, Mark 12, but it's made explicitly clear here. Jesus stands before them, of course, they arrest him, and then they try to find the reason to have him killed. Right? Our reading from Deuteronomy, very terse, very stark today, but it goes to say that um, and the law of Moses says if you're going to talk about capital punishment, you really have to have your case nailed down. And it's interesting that no one can really come up with a case against Jesus. It's only at the moment where he says, I am the Son of Man, I am the Messiah sent from God, that everybody freaks out and, and they charge him with blasphemy, which they can then uh, have him executed for. And so there's a sense where not only are the chief priests exposed, but Jesus exposes who he really is. Uh, that, that that which is hidden is now revealed. The truth is there, and, the, and these people fall asleep. <clears throat> these people miss out. The high priests and chief priests mix out. But the biggest exposure today in the whole text, the biggest revelation for us what we think is good and true and turns out to be not good and true, the biggest exposure is the disciples and their unbelief, right? At the Last Supper, Jesus and disciples, afterwards, they're walking to the Mount of Olives, to the, the Garden of Gethsemane uh, for their evening time together, and that's when Jesus drops the bomb, right? That's what we talked about with the kids. It's prophesied that when the shepherd is struck, the sheep will be scattered. This means that all the disciples, Jesus tells them, are going to fall away. But afterwards, Jesus said, when I rise from the dead, I'll meet you in Galilee. And the disciples protest, of course, but Jesus presses hard on them, especially on Peter. It's out of Jesus' hands at this point, right? The sheep will be scattered. It has been foretold. And of course, we get the scene of the disciples falling asleep in the garden as they're praying for Jesus. They don't understand the stakes. Jesus has talked forever in Mark's gospel. For those of you who've been here this summer, over and over, he says, I'm going to be turned over to the chief priests and then I will suffer and die and rise again. And he says it very plainly. And the disciples still don't believe him, because if they did, they would be up and awake and praying with him too. That We talked a little bit about this week, that language of being asleep or awake is not about knowledge, it's about urgency. And the disciples don't see anything urgent happening when Jesus knows 
his betrayer is near. So not only do they fall asleep, but, but when the mob does come to arrest Jesus, one of his disciples, another gospel tells us it's Peter, actually pulls out a sword and tries to defend Jesus uh, with the weapon. And Jesus says, no, put it all down. We're not going to fight. I'm going to go willingly. And then Jesus' words come true. Everybody scatters. Perhaps the disciples said, we will fight to the death for you. But what they didn't think was going to happen is they would just not fight and die for him. And of course, Peter, embarrassingly for them all, emblematic of the situation, denies Jesus three times. So much for all their bragging and their insistence that they would follow Jesus until his dying breath. Uh, The disciples have been exposed. Not one person in Mark's gospel, in fact, not one person in the whole of Mark's gospel, in fact, knows Jesus, takes Jesus for at his word, follows Jesus. Jesus can tell them exactly what's going to happen until until he's blue in the mouth and people aren't with him. This is why uh, Mark includes this baffling verse about a young man uh, following Jesus and, and, and receiving, um, having his one linen cloak and, and he runs away naked, right? It's a very odd verse. People have questioned that for a while and uh, they say, what is Mark trying to tell us here? Well, it's a very graphic image of what it means to be exposed, um, to have the truth revealed uh, for all of the other characters in this gospel, all the other people, the high, uh, chief priests, the disciples, his family, everybody. Everybody comes to Jesus and is exposed for the sinfulness in their heart and who they are. A friend of mine recently made an observation about truth and love. And I think it's really good, and I want to talk about it this morning because it deals with this question of being exposed. Even though Jesus said the truth will set you free, truth, my friend observed, truth without love can be cruel. Truth without love can be cruel. Think of the last time someone pointed out one of your defects. Think of the last time someone exposed one of your flaws and called it out. It's not fun. It's not fun no matter who you are. Uh, Some of you are watchers of the TV show Ted Lasso. I am. It's a fun show. And the title character is this happy-go-lucky, can-do American football coach who goes to coach football in England, i.e. soccer. It's a big sort of crazy mix-up. And, well, um, in the show, his team isn't doing well, and his marriage has fallen apart, and he's all crossed the ocean from his son, who he loves, and so he starts to have these series of debilitating panic attacks. And as the panic attacks get worse, at one point, he's in the middle of the biggest game of the year, and if his team wins, they, they, they win big. And he, he actually has to leave the soccer pitch to go back in the locker room because like, his panic attack is getting so bad. He, he can't focus. He can't listen. He's got ringing in his ears. He can't do anything. And what he decides to do after that is he decides finally, after everyone's been talking to him for for the whole season, he says, okay, fine, I'm going to go meet with the team psychiatrist. And he goes to meet with the team psychiatrist. He doesn't like psychiatrists. He doesn't like psychiatrists, but he does. And she begins to ask Ted uncomfortable questions. She's got this great, charming attitude, Ted Lasso does, but she's unmoved by his chummy behavior. And as the duo talk throughout the season, the therapist says to Ted, you know, Ted, you're right. The truth will set you free, but first it will tick you off. (laughs) Um, He doesn't say tick. This is church. I'm I'm PG version. The truth will set you free, but first it will tick you off. And Ted responds, well, you must be the truth because you're ticking me off right now. And it's great. And in that moment, right, he's realizing that as he's being exposed um, that, that, that this doesn't feel good. It feels cruel to him. It feels unkind. 
that he's trying to be a good person and yet his character flaws are being pulled out of him for him to see. He doesn't want to see it. And so uh, the truth can indeed um, hurt. It can expose people. And for Ted, it's the, the truth becomes that all of this sort of happiness and, and, and good humor and puns and pop culture references, all of them come from a, a deep, tragic moment from his past. Things um, change all of a sudden because the audience sees Ted Lasso, this beloved sort of cheerful character. Um, there's a darkness to him. And when we understand that darkness, we understand him better. I love that observation, though. This observation about the truth setting us free, but also making us angry, ticking us off. Isn't that what happens in our reading? What does Jesus say to the disciples? Guys, you're going to abandon me later? And and it makes everyone mad. They get defensive. They say, no, we're not going to abandon you. What are you talking about, Jesus? And of course, when it does happen, everyone is exposed. The truth can indeed hurt. So my friend made that observation. He said, truth without love can be cruel. Truth without love can be cruel. Think about something, again, you've experienced this in your own life where someone's pointed out something to you and they do it in a way that isn't particularly kind or thoughtful and it just sort of sticks in your craw and gets under your skin. But now let's look at the other side. What is it, if you have truth without love is, um, is cruel, what about love without truth? What is that? What is love without truth? Well, love without truth, we might call that sentimentality sentimentality. It's the idea that feels good, but isn't maybe grounded in reality. When I think of sentimentality, um, first off, I'm going to say some things. I want to make sure I'm not going to get anyone in, get in trouble with anyone. Does anybody here know the precious moments figurines, right? Did anybody collect them? Yes. Okay. Um, I, someone in here raised their hand. I, I'm going to be very nice. Maybe you know the precious moments figurines. Um, they, if you don't know Precious Moments, maybe you know like the, the willow tree or like Jim Shore, like the, the little collectible doodads and, and things you can put around your house. Um, for me, anyway, the Precious Moments figurines have always been uh, this vision of sentimentality. Uh, they came out in the, the late 70s and the 80s, and you can recognize them, right? It's the little children with the big, giant doe eyes, and their pupils are like 90% of their eyes, and they have giant heads, and they're doing these very cute things. They're doing very nice things, like petting a dog, or reading a book, or maybe they're holding hands, and they're very precocious. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. And that's what I think of when I think a bit of sentimental. Maybe it's just because I'm parenting right now, but, um, well, real children aren't like those figurines. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right? Real children are, are nothing like them. Real children, um, they, 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 they're dirty. <laughs> These figurines are very clean and pristine and, and beautiful, and real children get mud in their hair and, and food on their face, and um, they, they have dirty diapers, right? Precious moments, they don't take into account dirty diapers. And, um, and, and when you think of our kids, we love to think of them in a perfect world as little angels, but we know, just like us, they have their own proclivities and their own faults, their own foibles as well. We are not angels, neither are they. And so there's a sense where they're, they're cute and they're fun, you like to have them on display, but, but there's an element of love without maybe the full truth there. I think the figures are very sentimental. It's not necessarily bad, right? Sentimentality is not bad. Um, but it, maybe it's not the full story. And I think if we're going to find sentimentality in our reading, I think that's the, the idea behind the disciples and their defense. They say, Jesus, no, we're not going to, to leave you. We're going to be with you to the end. We're going to fight and die for you, Jesus. It's love without truth. It's love without truth. And so I think in this reading, we see 
you know, this, this tension between love and truth and, and having the truth be exposed, but is there love behind it? Or declarations of love, but is there truth behind it? And, and so what do you get when you have both love and truth? That's the real question. What do you get when you have love and truth together? What do those two things bring forward in us? Well, when you pair love and truth together, you get forgiveness. When you pair love and truth together, you get forgiveness. As we told the kids a minute ago, it's remarkable in our reading that after Jesus' hard word of truth, the disciples will be abandoning him. Is met, it's met with what we might call this pre-extended love and forgiveness, isn't it? Um, when Jesus says to meet him at Galilee, he's saying that he knows that the disciples are going to cut and run, and yet he loves them anyway. He says, I'm going to see you on Sunday, even if you betray me on Thursday. He says, meet me in Galilee. I will meet you there. And that way we can continue to do the work God has called us to after my resurrection. And I think anyone who's ever been in a, a real relationship with another person, right, friendships, parents and kids, uh, marriages, coworkers, neighbors, if you are close, then you will feel that tension between love and truth. What's the classic example of every sitcom? I'm going to be a stereotypical. The Barbie movie wouldn't like me. I'm going to be stereotypical for a minute, right? What's the classic example of this in a marriage, right? What does the wife say? She says, does this dress make me look fat? You know what I mean? That's the classic example. And so how does the husband answer? You know, love or truth? But the, the husband has his own version of this too, right? It's, it's, it's when he's driving around the stereotype. He's got the map in the car and he's trying to find out where to go. And the husband's like, we don't need to stop and ask for directions. It's like, what does the wife do, right? Love or truth. Um, and this is all over the place, right? Your, your friend, maybe, your friend uh, wants to be a musician and then your friend has a, has a demo tape that he's made up. And, and he says, listen to my demo tape and tell me what you think. And you listen to it and, well, love or truth, right? What do you say? And um, these things are just all over the place. A, a grandparent gives their teenage grandchild the itchy wool sweater for Christmas and says, well, what do you think? Do you like it? And, you know, love or truth? What do you say? But when forgiveness is at the crux of the relationship, when these conversations are, are, are hard, but you have forgiveness available, when you have love and truth together, these actually become easier conversations to navigate. The husband can say things like, honey, I think a different dress would highlight your figure better tonight. How's that for a diplomatic answer, right? Took me a while to come up with that. Um, <laughs> husband, and then, of course, what can the wives say? Wives can say, husband, um, you have a fantastic sense of direction, but we need to get there by dinner time, and that's only going to happen if we get a map. Friend, your mixtape has potential, but I think you need to, before you send it to record companies, you should really invest in a higher quality recording. Thank you, Grandma. It's very warm, and I think it'll look good on me, but I'm concerned about the material. It's kind of itchy. Could I take the gift receipt and go shop and find something that looks like it that, it will, that will fit me as well? Right? That's not to say these are the token answers to these questions, but it's to say that when forgiveness is on the table, you can be risky, you can be open, you can be more truthful with the people that you love and you care about. And so you can be more open and honest, and you can tell the truth, but also you can still keep the love in place because there is forgiveness. There is a, a recognition that someone's bad behavior or someone's um, uh, missteps are not going to fracture the relationship. And I think this is how Jesus treats his dis exposed disciples in our reading. He says to them, you are going to betray me. It's true. But also, I'll see you in Galilee afterwards. It's love. And how does he manage that? He forgives their sins. It's true for them. It's true for us.
And I will close with, a, with this story here about us, an, an Anglican Christian who understood this better than just about anybody, and that's the well-known hymn writer John Newton. Uh, John Newton, he understood that God treats us with 100% love and 100% truth mixed in together. Um, many of you know John Newton. He's the hymn writer who authored Amazing Grace. Um, he authored the, the great hymn that has made um, the rounds for, for hundreds of years, and it, it's, it's a powerful hymn. I think we sang it one or two weeks ago here. And what is well, well known about John Newton is that before becoming an Anglican clergyman and a hymn writer, he was a slave trader. Um, that he repeatedly went on a number of missions to get slaves from Africa over to the U.S. and then to take sugar from the U.S. back to the U.K., that transatlantic slave triangle that you know about in, um, in uh, your history classes. He was the captain of the ship. He was a sailor on many ships. In fact, at one point, ironically enough, he was on a ship. This is new to me. I hope it's new to you, too. It's fantastic. He was on a ship, and he, he, he bugged the crew so much. He got into so much conflict with the crew. He's like 20 years old, and he was such a hothead and such a jerk that the crew left him in Africa. They sailed away without him and left him there. And they left him with a guy who was another slave trader who then gave him to his wife, who was an African princess, and he served as a slave to the African princess for three years before they eventually got to rescuing him. And even then, he still continued after that to support the slave trade. What a, again, the cognitive dissonance here is astounding. But when he was rescued from that moment and he's on his way home, a big storm comes, it rocks the ship, and he has his conversion moment, and he prays to God, and, and God answers his prayer. And what ends up happening is he, he still takes a number of years to figure it all out in terms of becoming an abolitionist and opposing the slave trade. Um, but it drove him to, to become an Anglican priest and to become a, a great preacher in London and to, um, to become, again, the great hymn writer we all know. And for most of his life, Newton tries to understand. He's reconciling, well, here's my past. That is true. I was a terrible guy. I, I did the slave trade. I, I was, uh, you know, carousing in the process. And yet now here I am, a minister, uh, uh, someone who has been uh, redeemed by Jesus, and, and now I'm serving and writing these hymns. And, and he thinks about this for his entire life until on his deathbed, on his deathbed, he shares this reflection with a friend. He says, although my, menis, my memory is fading, he's 82 years old, he says, Although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Those were some of his final words on his deathbed. I love that, right? I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. I am a great sinner, 100% truth. Christ is a great Savior, 100% love. The sinful truth of his human condition has been made bore for all to see, but yet God loves him, and how does that work? Because Christ has died and rose again and forgiven him of all his sins. So this morning I offer you what we find in our reading. I want to offer you a word of truth, a word of love. The word of truth is this. We are not as strong as we think we are. We are not as righteous as we pretend to be. Um, we are not whole. We are not healthy. We are not on our own in good shape. Each of us in his own unique way has already missed the mark of what God wants for our lives. Our propensity is towards selfishness and our potential for wickedness. It's all been exposed. And yet we also have a word of love that comes through Jesus' forgiving work. God is stronger. God is righteous. God is totally whole. And he comes to find and forgive those who have gone astray and missed the mark. His propensity is towards selflessness and his potential to rescue has been revealed. 
So friends, the love of God is not a sentimental or a saccharine figure or a movie. It's not simply the truth that ticks us off. He does not hold back our, about our spiritual failures, nor is he embarrassed to expose our misdeeds. Instead, we find Jesus to be fully truth and fully love, forgiving sinners, welcoming them home, not as fiduciary conservators, but as adopted brothers and sisters through Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.